Please uh, have your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, please put up your hand now to get one because we're actually looking at this, this whole story and we only read the, the middle section of it. So we're going to be looking at parts that uh, you, uh, you weren't, didn't hear read a moment ago. So uh, get your Bible there from chapter 9, verse 32 is where we're starting. But I'll pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we have been seeing and learning in the book of Acts. Uh, we thank you in particular for the way we have seen your gospel go out Uh, and people be saved and the way that has happened uh, whether there has been persecution or whether there has been peace and so father help us to remember that your word is powerful that it's powerful to bring people to salvation and powerful to change us and so we pray that it might do that work in us this morning in Jesus name amen well there are some uh, moments in history that everyone knows are important the moment they happen Uh, And so there's those moments where people say, do you remember where you were when? You know, so for people in the 60s, it was when JFK was assassinated. Do you remember where you were when that happened? For my generation, it was when September 11 happened. I still remember that. I still remember we'd had people in our home for a a Bible study group uh, and they'd all gone. And Victoria and I thought, oh, let's just turn the TV on and see what's happening. And, and I saw this footage of planes flying, and I was thinking, what is this show? I don't know this show, and why are they showing it over and over again? It took me about 20 minutes to work out it wasn't a show, that it was real. But I still remember that moment. They're just such massive events that they're etched in people's memories. But sometimes the moments that really change history, no one actually notices at the time. They seem quite small, they can seem quite inconsequential, insignificant, but they have massive consequences. So anyone who's ever uh, studied history knows one of the most famous examples of that was in 1914 when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Bosnia, uh, of all places, and it was a very very sad moment, but but you wouldn't think that's going to impact people in England and America and Australia and so forth, but that event set off the chain that started the First World War. It's just that reality that sometimes there are little moments in history that at the time don't seem massive, but they have massive consequences. Well, at this point in the book of Acts, the story focuses on what really were two quite obscure moments in the time that they happened. No one else in the world was thinking about these points as as massive moments in history, but they totally shaped history more than any other event, I think, that's happened since. Uh, Even if you were an atheist, these two moments have actually shaped our world for the last 2,000 years more than just about any other moment of history. So the first one was last week, which was the conversion of the Apostle Paul. So if you look back at chapter 9, what we looked at last week, and it's impossible to overstate how massive that moment was. Uh, Because Paul was the man who led the spread of the gospel to the world. Paul changed the world. I remember reading a book, it was written by a non-Christian author and he was listing out the most important people in history and it was controversial at the time because they had Paul above Jesus at the top. And if you're a secular historian, that is actually right because their argument was no one would have known about Jesus. You wouldn't even have him in the hundred. He wouldn't even be in the list if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul. God used Paul more than any other person in history to shape history. But today's story actually goes hand in hand with that moment. The the two are like a package deal. If if one happened without the other, we would not have seen the results that we saw. Paul's mission would have been a failure. See, what happened in today's passage is actually just as world-changing as what we saw last week. But the thing is, it's the conversion of one man. That's all it is. 
Conversion of one man who you never read of again, you never hear of again. So why is this conversion of this man called Cornelius so important? The reason is because the problem was the apostle to the world had been converted, that's Paul. He'd been converted, but the early church still thought of itself as Jewish. Uh, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So Paul could go out and preach all he wants, but what would they do with these Gentiles? What would they do with these non-Jews who came to know Jesus? How were they even going to reach Gentiles if you couldn't go into their house? How would you even reach Gentiles if you couldn't share a meal with them? And if they then became Christians, how would you include them? Uh, Did they have to become Jews? We don't get just how big an issue this was. But this was the question for the early church. That's why so much of the New Testament is, is taken up with how do Jews and Gentiles relate? Because this was the thing. If Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, how do you include other people in the church of God? Uh, and you and I, unless we're from a Jewish background, uh, we are only Christians because this moment happened. Understand this. Just understand how big this is. We are only Christians because this moment happened. That's how important it is. So come with me into it. Uh, and we're actually, as I said, picking up at chapter 9, verse 32. Uh, you see, having focused on Paul coming to know Jesus, now the story switches back to the parallel story and it focuses back on the other key person in Acts, which is Peter. So really Acts very much focuses on Peter and Paul as the leaders of God's mission. So we've got Peter in Joppa. So by this time, Peter had left Jerusalem. He's he's traveling around Judea. He's preaching the gospel. He's doing amazing things. He's healing people and the like. And there's two stories here of what he did in Joppa. But it's significant that he ended up there in this little town on the coast, Joppa, Uh, Just by the way, you can still go to the supposed house of uh, Simon the Tanner if you go to Joppa today. Joppa's now surrounded by Tel Aviv if you go to Israel, but the the old town is still there. Who knows if it's actually the house of Simon the Tanner, but someone sees a chance to make some money out of it, as they always do. Uh, But tell me, as you hear Peter is in Joppa, does anyone have something go off in their mind? As you hear Peter is in the town of Joppa, does that, that start ringing bells in your mind? you think, hang on, I've heard of Joppa before. Where have you heard of Joppa before? Well, Joppa was where Jonah ran away from God when God wanted him to share the gospel with Gentiles. It's interesting, isn't it? That's where he ran to, to get on a boat, to go in the opposite direction when God said, I want you to preach my grace to Nineveh, a city that's not Jewish. So there's a lovely irony in this because this is about God overcoming Peter's reluctance to share the gospel to the nations. So we've got Peter. He's doing God's work among the Jews in Joppa. Uh, then we switch scenes. I love this story. It's really clever how it's told. It switches back and forth between these two men and their stories. So next we meet Cornelius the God-fearer. This is from the start of chapter 10. So look there, chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. It says, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. So straight away, you get an insight into this man. He's an important person. He's a commander of of over a hundred other soldiers. More than that, he was a God-fearer. That meant he was impressed by the God of the Jews. He he knew the pagan gods were a waste of time. He'd he'd worked that out. There is only one God, and that is the God of the Jews. Uh, And that was who he prayed to. But he hadn't converted. 
He hadn't become a Jew, he was a seeker, if you like. He'd started to listen to the Old Testament scriptures, he'd started doing the things he read about in God's law, living God's way, if you like, but he hadn't taken the step of becoming a Jew. He hadn't been circumcised, to be very frank about it, Uh, so he couldn't go to the temple, he couldn't go to the synagogue, he couldn't be a part of God's people. It's important to understand this. Yes, Cornelius was friendly to God. Yes, he was well disposed to God, but he was still on the outside. He was still a Gentile. So here's Cornelius. He's here praying. And at that moment, an angel comes and tells him, send some men to Joppa, find this guy you've never heard of called Simon Peter and bring him back. And he does what he's told. So now the story switches back to Peter. Come with me to chapter 10 from verse 9. Because while they're on their way, God was getting Peter ready for what was going to happen. Peter had gone up onto his roof to pray. This is where I love this story. It's Cornelius is praying, God speaking to him. Peter is praying, God speaking to him. uh, And God gives him a vision. Look from verse 11. It says, He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter is totally shocked that God would say this to him. Uh, Why was he so shocked, do you think? Well, because it says that it was all the animals, all the birds, all the Jews weren't allowed to eat many of these animals. Some of these animals he was being invited to kill and eat were unclean they were forbidden under the Jewish law there would have been a pig on there there would have been shellfish on there there would have been reptiles lizards so Peter says look at verse 14 no Lord Peter said he Peter has a habit of saying no to the Lord doesn't he if you anyway no Lord Peter said for I have never eaten anything common and ritually unclean now you have to understand be fair on Peter here understand just how ingrained this was it was about being holy this was a fundamental part of how the Jews under God's Old Testament law stood out were holy compared to the nations to eat these things was to disobey God Uh, it was to be unclean God's law said so more than that around God's law though the Jews had created further traditions where to even go into the house of a Gentile would make you unclean because they might have eaten those things and then you're sort of by connection unclean. So Peter just doesn't want to do this, but God rebukes him. And he says, look at verse 15, what God has made clean, you must not call common. That's a great line, isn't it? God is saying, seriously, you're going to argue with me? You already argued with Jesus enough. You know? <laughs> you're going to argue with me? I'm the one who gave you the laws. In the first place, don't argue with me, Peter. I am saying these rules no longer apply. Now, think, if you think about this, Peter should have known this already, shouldn't he? Because Peter was there when, back in Mark chapter 7, you can go read Mark chapter 7 later on, Peter was there when Jesus said, it's not food going into you that makes you unclean. What did Jesus say makes us unclean? The things that come out of our hearts Jesus says, are what makes us unclean. It's it's malice, it's anger, it's hatred, it's greed, it's lust, it's all those things that come out of here that are the problem. It's our sin that makes us common or defiled before God. Jesus already told them, doesn't matter what food you eat, Peter, that's not the problem. He sort of knows already, but it was so ingrained in him, he just couldn't contemplate it. In fact, it tells us God had to repeat the whole thing three times for Peter. And so while Peter's there wondering what this is all about, 
This is the cleverness of the story again. This brings us to the climax of the story, the conversion of Cornelius. Come to verse 23. So Peter goes with Cornelius's men who come and knock on his door. Uh, when he gets to Cornelius's house, Cornelius has invited everyone he knows, all his relatives and all his friends. I love this moment. Sometimes the best evangelists aren't even converted yet. I have seen this so many times in the life of our church where, where someone is still investigating themselves. They're, they're just coming along to church trying to work it all out. They're, they're coming to the life course trying to work it all out. And then the second week, they're there with five more friends. It, it's absolutely amazing. There, there have been times where actually the person who ends up getting converted is the friend, not the person who first came along, which is amazing in how, in how God works. Uh, well, here, God has told Cornelius, Peter's going to give you salvation. Peter's going to offer you salvation. So he says, well, I want everyone else to know this as well. It's just obvious. And I must admit, I find that a little bit of a rebuke. And I imagine you do too. When people who don't know the gospel yet uh, are more willing, are quicker to share it than me, who is meant to know so well the grace of Jesus. But anyway, Peter walks in and Cornelius falls at his feet to worship him it says now Peter's horrified by that verse 26 look there he says he says stand up I'm only a man myself I don't want you to worship me I want you to worship Jesus I actually think that's another little nugget of gold in this story I'm purposely telling the story and just drawing out a couple of these little nuggets of gold because how sad is it that the people who claim to walk in Peter's footsteps often love people bowing down to them and often love people giving them the place of honour. How sad is that the bishops and popes who claim to walk in Peter's shoes often say, kiss this ring on my finger or, or come and, and bow at my feet. Peter would be horrified by some of the things popes and bishops do. But back to the story. Peter's nervous. He says, God, I shouldn't actually be here. I, I'm not comfortable. I'm not meant to come into the home of a Gentile. I'm only here because God has told me that I should. But Cornelius tells him about his dream. He tells him about how he wants everyone to hear what Peter has to say. And uh, so Peter does what God has called him there to do. He preaches the gospel. He tells them about Jesus. We didn't read this part. That was a mistake on my part. I forgot to extend the reading. But I hope you go home and read from verse 34 on. Look there now. And I'll draw out a couple of verses. But from verse 34 on, uh, Peter explains the gospel. He tells them all about Jesus. He tells them about what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Uh, but especially he tells them about the death of Jesus. I think he intentionally uses the phrase, Jesus was hung on a tree. Be because I think behind this, we're only getting like the Reader's Digest version of these sermons, I think, in Acts. Often they're expanded out. I think he would have explained how that meant Jesus was cursed for our sake under the Old Testament law. And he tells them Jesus didn't stay dead, that he rose from the grave and how now every person needs to hear that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. This is just another of those great gospel sermons in Acts and I hope you've been challenged and encouraged by them. But I just want to point out a couple of key verses that capture the essence of this story and the point it's here to make, why this story has been recorded for us. Look at me at verses 34 and 35 and these are the key verses. It says, then Peter began to speak. Now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. 
Now, please look at these verses really, really closely because I would hate you going away with the wrong impression because some people look at verse 35 there and they say, oh, so anyone who fears God and does good things is acceptable to God. And they use that as the basis of saying we don't need to share the gospel with people as long as they fear God, however they conceive God to be uh, and do some good things, they're acceptable to God. And so they say you don't need to know Jesus to be saved. This verse gets contorted to say that. Uh, but of course, Peter cannot be saying that, can he? Because I mean, that would contradict everything the rest of the Bible teaches, first of all. Uh, but more than that, if it was true, why did he bother going to see Cornelius? Because Cornelius already feared God. Cornelius was already doing good things. Peter wasn't there to say, go, keep going, Cornelius, you're fine with God. He was there to tell him how to be saved. So no, Peter is not saying that. In fact, it makes it very clear at the end of his speech in the other key verse in verse 43, look there. He says, all the prophets testify about him, that's Jesus, that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. So how do you become acceptable to God and receive his forgiveness? By believing in Jesus, that's how. So what is verse 34 and 35 saying? Go back there. Well, it's saying that the person who comes to fear the Lord will put their faith in Jesus. And then they will do righteousness as someone who follows Jesus. So you have to understand is the point of verses 34 and 35 is not to suggest some other way to be acceptable to God other than through faith in Christ. The key point is God does not show favoritism. The key words in verses 34 and 35 are doesn't show favoritism and but in every nation. You see the key point is that people from every nation can come to find God, trust in Jesus and find God's forgiveness. God does not favour one race or one nation over another. See, the point Peter had come to understand is the gospel is for every person on earth and so every person on earth needs to hear about Jesus and every person on earth can find forgiveness through Jesus and so because of that, he should not let anything get in the way of him sharing the gospel with them. And more than that, no stumbling blocks, no other conditions, no other barriers should be put in the way of people hearing about Jesus. Which leads to the beautiful climax of the story. While Peter is still speaking, something amazing happens. Look at verse 30, 44, 44. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter, were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. This is, just, this is why this is this wonderful moment. These Gentiles became Christians. They believed in Jesus and they received the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing moment. The gospel had gone to the Jews. Of course it had. Jesus is the Jews' Messiah. A couple of weeks ago, we sort of gone to the Samaritans, like the half-brothers of the Jews. But now, even Gentiles were being saved. It's amazing when any person comes to know Jesus but this is the most amazing first conversion in history. This is that important. This was the breaking of the wall of the dam so that the water of the gospel could, could go out to everyone. Now let's just pause at this point. Why did God do it this way, do you think? Why did God, he just converted Paul, the so-called apostle to the Gentiles. Why wasn't he the, the first story we read? Why did God do it this way? Why did he contrive things to make sure Peter was the one who shared the gospel 
with the Gentiles first? Why, is this, why have this big obvious coming of the Holy Spirit, just like happened at Pentecost for the first Jewish Christians, just like happened to the Samaritans a couple of weeks ago that we saw? I think it's because from now on, you won't see that again. So why did God do this here? Well, it's the same as what we saw with those first Samaritans to become Christians. Do you remember how Peter had to be there to show they were getting the Holy Spirit? And do you remember how Jesus said to Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom? Well, it's the same here. God is showing these first Christians, this is legit. Peter's there. You can't question this. This is legitimate. I am saving Gentiles. This is Jesus's, God's way of saying, get on board or get out of the way. Get on board or get out of the way. And Peter got the message. I love his response. Look at verses 46 and 47. It says, then Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commands them to be baptized. I love that. Peter is saying, how can we withhold the symbol when the reality has happened? When we baptize someone, wonderfully, we're going to baptize someone on Easter Sunday at our 1030 service, a person who's become a Christian uh, in recent times. What, What better day to celebrate new life than Easter Sunday? But when you baptise someone, it's an outward symbol of the spiritual reality. It's the outward symbol of the real thing that's happened, which is their salvation, that they're a new person in Christ, that they have been washed clean, that they have received the Holy Spirit. And Peter is saying, how can we not accept these people now as brothers and sisters in Christ when God has so clearly accepted them as his children? But that leaves one last question to deal with, and that is, would other people accept them? And this is chapter 11. So come with me to chapter 11, the first 18 verses. Have you ever had that experience when you're on a real high and then someone comes along and just bursts your bubble? You ever had that? I I was, uh, when you share great news, but the people you tell don't think it's great news and they're just ho-hum about it. I was playing golf a little while back with a guy and the the guy I was playing with got a hole in one. It was absolutely amazing. Now, there, there is a small proportion of you here going, wow, that's amazing. The other people, your eyes are rolling back in your head. He's talking about sport. I can't be bothered. Sadly, that was what his wife was like when he rang her. It was so devastating. She was like, oh, but what time are you going to be home? <laughs> well, there's this one last little moment in today's story that's even worse than that. We didn't read it before, so flip over to chapter 11. Peter comes back to Jerusalem so excited But how many of the other Christians respond? Look at chapter 11, verse 2. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who stressed circumcision argued with him, saying, you visited uncircumcised men and ate with them? I think that might just be one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible, don't you? It's so sad, so deflating. God is at work. People are being saved, and that is your response? Can I tell you, in a moment of personal confession, every evangelist and every church minister has suffered that deflation over the years. Everyone, when you share the news, the joy of God being at work in people's lives, but the people who are already meant to know Jesus don't get excited by it, or even worse, grumble about it and criticise it. I remember being at a parish council meeting before I went to Moore College, so it wasn't at St George North. Our parish council's wonderful. There's some here today. But uh, the minister was sharing about the growth we'd seen in the night church, among the young people and, and the minister was really excited this is a tiny little church and we'd seen this incredible growth you know we'd grown from like 20 people to 50 or 60 it was just wonderful and, and he was so excited then one of the old guard immediately says well I hope they don't want to make any changes and you just saw the air go out of the minister just like that 
Well, it doesn't knock a grunt out of Peter. Look at this. Peter tells them what happened. He goes through the whole story. He goes through the visions. He goes through everything. So they might come to understand and they get it. Look at verse 18. When they heard this, they became silent. Then they glorified God, saying, So God has granted repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. Even the grumblers couldn't doubt such an obvious work of God. Well, there is that second great moment in history for us, and it is a great story. But what are we to take away from it? Well, there are some, some pages of Scripture that make great calls on us with obvious applications. Go and do this, go and think that. Uh, this one is more subtle, because I think the main response for us today from this passage is, and it's the first point there, praise God that we have been included. There's the main point. Praise God that we have been included. Praise God that he knocked down those barriers so the gospel could go to all nations and even come to us. Praise God he doesn't show favoritism so that people like us from every nation on earth can find his forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Praise God that those first Jewish Christians shared their Messiah with us so that we could be saved. Praise God that men like Peter and then Paul were willing to put aside their prejudices and their own comfort and their culture to share Jesus with the world. That is the first response we should have here. Praise God. But then secondly, make sure that we welcome people like God welcomes people. Second conclusion I want to draw is from the response of the Jewish Christians and picking up on that parish council meeting, if you like, that response of, well, they're welcome to join us if they will just change and become like us. Because that response has been mirrored right throughout the church, right throughout history. And it looks like this. Yes, Jesus is the Lord. Yes, we are great supporters of evangelism. We love supporting missionaries to go do it in other places. Everyone needs to hear about Jesus. Yeah, we'll welcome anyone in, but only if they will just change and become like us and not make us have to do anything different. When you understand the gospel, when you understand that every person from every culture, from every age and every whatever else divides humanity, every person needs to find Jesus to be saved. And when we understand the fact that Jesus commands his church to share the gospel with the whole world, with every nation, with every culture, with every person, when we understand that, we realize that while the message is unchanging and non-negotiable, this doesn't change for anyone. You don't change this to welcome people, but everything else is negotiable. Too often as, as Christians, we demand that people fit in and then we'll tell you about Jesus. You come in here to church, you become like us and then we'll share Jesus with you. Rather than willing to go out there and change ourselves and make them feel comfortable to win them for Christ. You see, that's why the Apostle Paul went on to say, I will become all things for all men so that I might win some for Christ. He says, if I'm meeting with Jews, I'll, I'll take pork off the menu. But if the Gentiles come, I'll take a double serve. Paul would have said, if I have to go to Melbourne to tell them about Jesus, I'll pretend to be interested in AFL. You know, because no one could really be interested, but I'll pretend, you know. If they wear head coverings around here, I'll put on a scarf. If they don't, I'll take it off. What I like, who cares? My rights, who cares? What do I want? I count that as irrelevant. I will put my own interests aside so that I can reach other people with the gospel. The truly faithful Christian and the truly faithful church will do anything to win people for Christ except change the message and change the word of God. Everything else is negotiable. And that is what we have to be. We have to be people who will give up what we want, 
We have to be people who give up what we like, who give up our rights, give up our culture, give up our preferences to just get out there and win others for Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful moment in history alongside the conversion of the Apostle Paul where the first Gentile found salvation. And we thank you for the way it forced the early church to see the things Jesus had been saying, that the gospel was for all nations and that no barriers should be put in people's ways. And so more than anything else out of today's passage, we praise you. We praise you that this barrier has been broken down so we have been able to come to know Jesus and find his forgiveness. But also we pray that like Paul and Peter, at this moment, we would understand that we should set aside all our wants, all our desires, so that we might win people for Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.